Hey everyone, this is Gabby and Karim, and you're listening to the Making of an Incredible MD podcast by Halide to Health. Tune in each week to hear us talk about the journey of getting into med school. From GAMSAT to medical interviews, get the insider scoop from med students who have done it all before. So So stay stay tuned tuned and get ready to get med ready. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It's Gabby here. And Karim. And on today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about gender bias in medicine as part of another episode of our Learning in Medicine series. But before we jump in, we will do an acknowledgement of country. So I would like to acknowledge the traditional and rightful owners of the land in which we are on today. We are recording this episode on Yorta Yorta land. I would like to pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging, as well as pay my respects to any First Nations people who are listening to this podcast episode today. So, as I've alluded to, this episode is all about gender bias in medicine. So, yeah, obviously this is a really huge topic and we won't be covering everything today. Uh, We're also not experts in this topic by any means. We're just here to have a chat about it um, just to get the conversation started. And it's really from a medical student perspective, like things we've experienced, um, what we've seen and what we've learned about in our course so far about gender bias in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And another important disclaimer is we recognize that any references to gender and pronouns in medicine are dominated by the terms female, male, man, woman, he, him, she, her. But we want to acknowledge that any person of any gender can have any pronouns. um, And it's important to ask the question and acknowledge that. So... What is gender bias in medicine? Uh, Hard question. (laughs) And there's lots of facets to this, but... (laughs) Um, So it just refers to the way that a healthcare professional might have a preference for one gender over another. And that might not be an outright thing. So it might not be outright sexism. It might be something that's uh, a little bit more subdued or might be something a bit more systemic where it's a little bit more subtle in terms of um, how these preferences occur. Uh, And obviously it's based on many things that could include prejudice, so prejudice of a healthcare professional towards a patient or a consumer, Uh, stereotypes that we all have or that we've grown up with, uh, and cultural norms. And they will vary obviously around the world and here in Australia we have our own cultural norms that can result in gender bias. Mm, as well as cultural norms that vary from state to state, town to town as well. So yeah, um, sure. definitely something to consider about how sort of um, complex this can be. Mm. Uh, and that's why this is such a huge topic <laughs> that we're definitely going to miss stuff. Um, but these are just the things that are sort of coming up in our mind about it. And I guess the reason why we're talking about this is because this bias can result in negative outcomes for people. Um, In particular, when we're talking about medicine, it can result in someone receiving different treatment um, based on their gender, um, which obviously is something that is is not on. Um, And as Karim said, this can be due to intentional sexism, um, which is quite outright and intentional or it can be due to subconscious um, prejudice and bias as well which you know um, not excused either but just something to be mindful of um, yeah and this uh, like this bias it can sort of be either way so it can be from the doctor towards the patient or the other way around if mm-hmm. you have a particular preference towards what kind of doctor you see 
And we do talk about this a bit later, like, for example, if you prefer to see only women or only men, um, so like you've got your own biases there, but today we'll really focus on how the medical professional's own bias can result in worse outcomes for the patient. Mm, mm. This is something that we've spoken a little bit about at uni through our classes. Um, So, yeah, we'll be really focusing on patient outcomes and patient experiences here. So a bit of a background on what gender bias is. Uh, So it's really a social construct and it's probably as old as medicine is, really. (laughs) Or as old Um, as the world is. (laughs) So it, and it's really got to do with the way that society views uh, gender, and in this case, we'll just focus on women. Um, and the really good context for bringing up gender bias is the example of hysteria. So hysteria is a diagnosis that has originated a long time ago, starting with the ancient Egyptians and Greek medicine. Uh, and it's a really broad diagnosis. Essentially, hysteria was a, la- a label more than a diagnosis, really, that was given mm-hmm. to any woman who expressed emotional or sexual behaviour that was not desirable or it was a bit strange from what was culturally accepted at that time. And what they perceived as normal for women at that time. And so that's one example of how gender bias has manifested itself. It's society going, you know... Um, here is a diagnosis that we're going to put on and label women by. And it, it actually sort of uh, was used to oppress women. So women were hospitalised against their will um, in the 18th and 19th century where this diagnosis became extremely popular. Mm, which actually sort of was maybe the beginning of distrust in medicine. Um, I don't know the whole history of um, medicine and its origins but um, you know this distrust in the healthcare system um, I can imagine that this is the beginning of that yeah definitely and and so much so to the point where this diagnosis of hysteria it was in the DSM Um, if you're not familiar with the DSM it's a way in which healthcare professionals can diagnose people with mental health disorders and still used to this day it's the bible for mental health conditions (laughs) essentially if there's anyone with mental health condition the way you diagnose it is you use criteria from DSM Um, so for hysteria the criteria was not removed for diagnosis all the way up until 1980 which is bizarre our parents were both alive then like it is it is crazy so hysteria has been a diagnosis that's been around for a long time um and that's just one example of how gender bias came to occur in medicine Mm. there's lots of other examples a really common one that we get taught about is the way men and women experience heart attacks Mm -hmm. so if you ever imagine a heart attack... Um, what do you think of? What do you think of? You think of a man... Central crushing chest pain radiating chest. down to the left arm, left jaw. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so that's the classic presentation of heart attacks. And the reason why it's called classic is because really when they did these studies, they only had male participants. Mm, so mm. it became... Um, I guess the, the data was really skewed by the fact that all the participants were males so all the symptoms were related to the way that men experience heart attacks mm-hmm. so what's the result and this is what we mean by gender bias so the the fact that they looked at men only meant that the way that women experience heart attacks was a bit different and so the outcome is that women will often be misdiagnosed 
or have delayed diagnosis when it comes to heart attacks? Mm. Um, you know, typically what is studied now, um, and there is evidence now to sh- show that um, women tend to experience more back pain symptoms rather than the central crushing chest pain. Um, you know, women still can get that, you know, quote unquote yeah. classical symptoms of um, a heart attack, but it seems like it is more common to get this back pain, um, which is, you know, probably leading to this delayed diagnosis. And I guess going on from that, um, male bias in research and in, you know, clinical trials and studies is pretty prominent and is probably what's causing um, a lot of this bias today still. So often women of childbearing age are excluded from trials. And this was sort of declared or um, as a recommendation from the FDA in the 1970s after the thalidomide trial. If you're not um, familiar with it, we won't go into it, um, but definitely look it up. It's quite an interesting and very historical, sad trial. Um, So after that, they declared that women of um, childbearing age should not be included in trials, as well as because women who are still menstruating, um, the different hormone levels within their bodies at the different times throughout their cycle may complicate results. Um, So whether or not I agree with this, um, it, it is very important because this is a bit of old stats, but we also found that between 1997 and, two, and the year 2000, eight out of 10 drugs were removed from the US market because of side effects that occurred mainly or exclusively in women. Just going to show that because women are excluded from these trials, um, it, it has these repercussion mm. effects um, because of this male bias. Because they essentially just don't find these results when they go looking because yeah. um, it's easier, I suppose, for a lot of researchers to only hire men, male participants in their studies because they don't have to worry about those other you know, compl- so-called complex um, you know, hormonal, hormonal cycles that can occur. <laughs> hormonal cycles. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's just research saying that hormones are too complicated. But, mm, but anyway. you know, at the end of the day, women who are at various points throughout their cycles are still going to be taking these drugs and things like that. So maybe it is mm. important to study from that perspective. But, um, alas, I'm not a researcher. so <laughs> And things have improved. I mean, for example, if you're going to prescribe... Uh, a medication that pregnant women will be on, pregnant women must be included in the trials. Yeah. So that's, the things have changed since that statistic, um, but there's still a long ways to go. And remember that a lot of the um, sort of uh, criteria or the um, clinical guidelines that we work off still today is still based on a lot of these um, studies that happened many years ago based off these rules. So it's really important to um, just sort of, have an open mind when looking at criteria and advice. Exactly. And, and there's still more examples. So another example we found was that uh, although women are more likely than men to experience chronic pain, they are less likely to receive pain medication and they're also more likely to have their problems dismissed as a psychiatric diagnosis. Mm. And that goes back to what we're talking about with stereotypes. So um, a lot of people have heard the stereotype that men are stoic. They go to the doctor if their legs are falling off, (laughs) you know, when they're really, really sick and Mm. vice versa for women. So, you know, women problems are due to, you know, mental health. It's all in their head. That's a common sort of theme that you might see. It's obviously incorrect and wrong and terrible, but it's a common thing that comes up. Um, and it's because of these stereotypes that, you know, they sort of 
embed themselves in, in systemic sexism mm. in healthcare and that's why there's worse outcomes for patients. Mm. And it's not just, you know, women who are suffering from these prejudices either and it's important for us to acknowledge um, that this prejudice um, is is quantified only further in minority groups. Uh, transgender, non-binary people are also highly susceptible to discrimination from healthcare professionals, um, as well as women of colour. Um, so it's really important to remember this. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And we're hoping to have more episodes about these topics, um, as we think it's really important to discuss this even further. But I guess that carries on to the next question, Krim. Why is gender bias an issue? I think we know, <laughs> but why? Well, let's talk a bit more about what causes it first. So uh, it's obviously, as we've mentioned, it's a result of sexism in the way that medicine and medical institutions have been built today. So up until the 20th century, so not very long ago, Western medicine was dominated by men. And so the institutions built were made to deal with men's health problems. So they focused a lot less on women and women's health problems became its own specific niche, mm. um, which meant that a lot of the funding and a lot of the research that went towards, um, you know, fixing health problems or dealing with health problems didn't go so much towards uh, women's health problems, but more towards men's health problems. And I guess that like has to do with as well that it, a lot of the doctors, if not all of the doctors, were men, mm. um, whereas now that's absolutely changing. Yeah. And as a common, well, not a common misconception, but there's this sort of unfortunate idea that medicine or men's health problems, it's just medicine and then women's health problems as its own niche. That's so true, actually. Which is, which is really sad, but yeah. it, it does, it sort of is this unfortunate um repercussion of the way that medicine was built or at least western medicine yes so remember that um if you are a doctor or a health professional in any way shape or form unless you're super super specialized in a specific field probably around 50 percent of your patients will be women so it's really important to remember that these you know quote unquote women's health issues aren't you know niche at all they're really important and you need to be across them yeah and while, you know, things are starting to change today and there is a lot more women in healthcare, unfortunately, women are still underrepresented in leadership roles. So they don't typically occupy like very high paid roles or um, roles where there is leadership. And so unfortunately, sometimes the end decision is still made by men who will then tend to occupy those roles. Mm, but I just... I would like to follow that up by saying that there are some fantastic female leaders in our world, and I am very grateful to um, grow up in a world in which there are female role models for me to look up to um, in the medical field and outside of the medical field. And hopefully something that we can do, um, both Karim and I, is bring those awesome female role models to you guys and bring them on our podcast. Fingers crossed they'll come on. Um, we have quite a few um, fantastic, powerful women um, in the medical field that we'd love to get on our podcast and have a chat. So hopefully they'll come on and grant us with their presence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are lots of other reasons why gender bias is an issue. Uh, for example, yeah. it impacts men, women, transgender health. Um, it creates distrust in the healthcare system. So yeah, the way I like to see this is, and the way I like to sort of 
think about it on an individual level and then how that can relate to population health is if one person is um, uh, treated poorly in the medical field due to bias, um, specifically in this case gender bias, it creates a distrust in the healthcare system for them. So then next time that they feel sick or have something um, going on, they won't go to the medical practitioner until they really need to. So there's this delayed um, presentation. And then they have a worsening of their medical condition, which then has a bigger impact on their quality of life and so on and so on. And if this is happening, especially in minority groups, it's just further making them more vulnerable to receiving a poor standard of care and perpetuating health disparities between minority groups. So it is really important to remember this, that even if you're thinking about it on an individual level, if that happens in lots of individuals from the same group, it perpetuates these population health issues. And obviously it means that patient-centred care is not being practised. If two people present to you with the same sort of set of symptoms, you'd expect that those two people should be treated in the same way. And you shouldn't, as a medical practitioner, let bias influence the way that you treat one person versus another. Mm, mm. Um, you know, it also will come down to things like risk factors and how those two people are different and... In that way, sort of people do receive different treatments based on their own individual needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you shouldn't dismiss one person's symptoms because of how they identify in terms of their gender. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that flows nicely, Karim, to any experiences that we've had of it. So can you think of any experiences as a medical student that you've seen gender bias in action, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. And and this the place that I've really seen a lot of this has been in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really classic and very unfortunate. But a lot of young women presenting to the emergency department with abdominal pain or pelvic pain, which is a very common presentation, they're often dismissed in terms of their pain and assumed to be mostly psychological. They're given less pain treatment um, and they have to advocate more for their health needs to be heard. Which is exhausting. And, and very sad. Mm. Um, and it also just means that uh, they have worse outcomes and mm. they tend to be listened to less or diagnosed late. Um, mm-hmm. Which again When, is when it shouldn't be the case. I mean... If a male presents to the ED, they should be treated in exactly the same way. Mm, mm, exactly. And I guess I've a place that I've seen it as well among patients, but also in my personal life among friends, family, is a lot of um, female patients saying that they prefer to see female doctors. Um, that's because they tend to feel like they're being um, listened to and understood better and better supported, so to speak, um, than when they've seen male doctors. Um, Even if this is for, you know, again, I'm just going to say quote-unquote women's issues again because I don't like that sort of um, uh, title, but that's all I can think of. Um, But even if it is for something like a cold or, you know, sore toe, they still prefer to see female doctors because in their opinion and in their experiences, they've felt more understood by these types of practitioners. So it's it's quite prominent. And then also, you know, that means that sometimes they can't get into a female GP, especially in the country. You know, there's a there's a lack of doctors as it is, let alone female doctors. So they are then have that delayed presentation again, perpetuating these health issues. Um, the cycle goes on and on. Um, but this can be quite depressing I think when we talk about these topics and 
I don't know about you, Corinne, but I can often feel sort of like quite helpless. Mm. So I think it's important to talk about these topics, of course, and open up the discussion, but also have a productive discussion about it. So what can we actually do about it? And what do you think, Corinne? <laughs> there's lots of things, but did you want to start? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things you can do. Um, so you can break it up into different levels. I suppose from a medical student or from an individual le- level, you can advocate from your patients. Mm. Every single one of your patients, you can advocate for them. You can make sure their voices are heard and that they're taking seriously for whatever problems they present with. Recognize your own bias. That's probably a really important one. Um, and if you're listening to this sort of podcast, you're probably sort of aware of some of these issues already, mm. which is really great, but you can always continue working on it. Um, another thing you can do is call out bad behavior when you see it. Uh, mm. yeah, a good way of doing that, because that might obviously be really intimidating, but a good way of doing it is to question bad behavior. It's like, why, why did you choose to do that? Or, mm. um, you know, what led you to make that decision? Mm. Um, yeah. And I will put in the show notes um, a link to an article by the NCBI, which has actual like very good tips on how to ask those questions and call people out um, in a productive, non-aggressive way, essentially. Because for myself, that's the biggest thing. I get very scared about calling out, you know, my colleagues, Mm. even... um, Very stressful. Yeah. Your seniors as well. It can be really stressful, especially as a medical student where all of your marks and your sort of reputation is made up from um, references, essentially. So it can... It can be really scary. So I'll put a link to that article in the show notes as well. Um, another article which I found whilst preparing for this episode um, was an article by the International Journal for Equity in Health. And it looked at a specific model for analyzing gender bias in medicine. And what they found was gender bias in medicine often arises from when assumptions are made about sameness or equity between women and men, when there are genuine differences to consider, such as in disease, life conditions, experiences, biology, etc. But it can also happen from when assumptions are made about differences when there are none, and these you know, assumptions of differences stem from stereotypes. Um, so it's really important to remember that, you know, any assumptions for either way, whether you're assuming that um, two different people of um, different genders have the same conditions or different conditions, assumptions can be dangerous. And it's really important, as Krim said, to, you know, reflect on your own ideas, your own bias, your own prejudice, um, and where those ideas come from, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And finally, or maybe not finally, but the few other things that you can do is uh, from a societal point of view, and it's very tricky if you don't have roles in leadership, but what you can try and do is advocate for change, Mm. Um, whether that's with your, you know, local political representative, if you want to write to them. Local government. Local government, uh, if you want to write to them and and complain about these issues, that's really great. Um, But also with raising awareness to people you talk to, being aware of these issues um, and advocating for policy change wherever you can. Mm. It's really important. It goes a long way. Yeah, and joining different clubs and societies as well at your particular university um, can help you 
find like-minded people to support each other in, you know, advocating for these important issues as well as social media, I think, um, obviously has its flaws, but but it's promoting education, which is essentially us. The problem is really that when people don't talk about this stuff and it doesn't get talked about, it gets shoved under the rug as so to speak. And, um, it just goes unnoticed and and nothing changes. Mm. Uh, Mm. and so the changes need to start from, individual level but also going all the way up to leadership um in these in these big hospitals for example Mm. is one place Mm. where these changes can occur Mm. and i guess on a patient level as well as what patients can do about gender bias is ensuring that you advocate for yourself so seek explanations from your doctor regarding your symptoms um, and tests or investigations that are performed Um, and if you still feel like your problems are being ignored um, seek a second opinion. You know, you deserve high quality healthcare. So if you feel as though you're not getting it, um, I know it's like easy for us to say that just look for another doctor when in, in reality that can be really hard in different areas in Australia, particularly rural, regional areas. Um, but yeah, I think advocating for the right healthcare is important. Yeah. And finally, uh, there is. A few resources that we think are really helpful. So We'll include a lot of them in the show notes um, as well, so you can just click on the links. Um, so for example, uh, there's a really nice article released by Medical News Today called Gender Bias in Medical Diagnosis, and it's a 2021 article. It's really well written and it discusses a lot of the points that we talked about. Um, there's also the Royal Australasian College of GPs and they've released a lot of, uh, very wonderful work about gender bias. Um, and they are really sort of leading the way towards how we can make these changes and, um, trying to improve health outcomes. Mm. And there's so many more fantastic resources out there. The internet really is a wonder in this area. (laughs) So look for it. Um, and you know, again, this isn't the end of this discussion, rather just the beginning. Um, and we're just talking about it from our experiences, our learnings, um, and just trying to engage in these conversations because they're important in order to stamp, you know, stereotypes and stamp stigma. Um, we are still learning and we are hoping to get experts on the show to chat about this further so that we can learn how to, you know, really advocate um, against gender bias in medicine as soon-to-be junior doctors. Um, Well, not that soon, thankfully, still at least a year away. (laughs) Maybe more, depending how this year goes. (laughs) But, um, yeah, hopefully we can grab some of those experts on the show um, to share that wisdom with you guys as well. Um, But if you have any thoughts or um, any awesome resources that you think we should know about around this topic, feel free to reach out to us. Our contact information is always in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you found this uh, introduction to gender bias and medicine useful. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely be back to talk about this some more. Yes. See you later, guys. Thank you for listening to the Making of an Incredible MD podcast by Halide to Health. Please like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word about our podcast. And we'd love to hear your feedback. So send us an email or message on Facebook. All of our links are in the show notes. Thanks. We'll see you next time.